welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jacob Jarvis. How would you describe Liz Truss's speeches? Uninspiring, perhaps, if you were being polite. Or, if you were being less kind, you might say she sounds like a broken robot headmistress programmed to recite Margaret Thatcher quotes and keep bankers happy. On the surface, we might be able to say Truss's speeches aren't great. But why is that? What is she getting wrong? And what could she do differently? Here to discuss this with me is Dr. Henriette van der Blom, the founding director of the Network for Oratory and Politics and a reader in ancient history at the University of Birmingham. Hi, Henriette. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Henriette, I've made it clear I've not been blown away by our new Prime Minister's speaking skills, but what have you thought so far? Well, I think I'm not the only one to think that even before she became Prime Minister, she was perhaps not very inspirational in both content and delivery. And I would say that I've listened to her acceptance speech at the party conference, her first speech to the nation as prime minister after that flight back from from Scotland. And I've also uh, seen bits of her speech to the UN more recently. And I think, I mean, content aside, the (laughs) the delivery is, is the thing that first strikes you as perhaps problematic. Do you think she's sort of improved over time at all from when there was the leadership campaign to now? Have you noticed any significant changes? Well, even if you just think of those three speeches that I mentioned, acceptance speech, 10 Downing Street and the UN, I would say the first one was the worst (laughs) in terms (laughs) of delivery. She seemed not to get the timings right. So Mm. the audience were in doubt about when to clap. Mm. And when they clapped, they sort of interrupted her final sentence. Her 10 Downing Street speech, she was trying to move the pace down. So she was speaking a bit more sort of stateswoman-like, if you can say say it like that. And the UN speech was also, I think, trying to do the same, but had the issue of sounding quite monotone Mm. and, again, not inspiring many emotions in the audience. So... I think they they have developed, you know, it's it's a little bit up to taste whether you think they've become better. She's had to make a number of different types of speech given sort of tumultuous circumstances surrounding the time she's got into number 10. Do you think she's better at any specific type of speech? You know, do you think she's better at speaking to the party than she is maybe to the general public, for example? I think we don't have enough examples of that as prime minister to really Mm. assess whether she's better in front of one audience than in front of another. And I think the audience question is really quite interesting, Jacob, because when you think of just those three speeches again that I mentioned, they were to different audiences, but also at the same time to a range of audiences, each of them. And that was pretty clear in the acceptance speech at the party conference. She was clearly just addressing the party members and the MPs, not the wider audience listening on the radio at home. Whereas in the UN speech, she was clearly not addressing only the UN members, but also a domestic audience. So I think she's aware or her advisors are aware that there are multiple audiences at the same time, but have not yet quite cracked how to speak to all of them at the same time time. Yeah, is that sort of modern day dissemination of speeches what makes them maybe so hard to give in 2022? Because a lot of the time, a large chunk of the people receiving them aren't actually the intended audience. It's certainly a feature of modern mass media, but 
when you think even of speeches before modern mass media came in, okay, the speaker could address a particular audience in front of him or her, but actually famous speeches would then be written down in some kind of version, whether verbatim or not, and could be circulated. So there could be other audiences, even sort of in, in pre-modern and early modern periods. But of course, then the reaction would be delayed. I've focused on trust a lot so far. Do you think that's perhaps maybe a little unfair? Let us not be accused of being biased whatsoever. Have you noticed there been a steady decline across politics generally when it comes to the standard of rhetoric? I think it's it's perhaps a little bit more complex than looking at whether it's a decline or not. The picture is a bit more complicated by exactly what we talked about before, the modern mass media having to address multiple audiences at the same time contemporaneously. But I think there's also a change today now in the way in which we are being regaled these speeches. So it used to be that a speech was delivered and then a further dissemination could take place afterwards. But now it seems that content of, of significant speeches are often leaked days beforehand and even the formulation of a speech is given to the media on the morning before it, it's supposed to be delivered. So we, we already know what's what's going to be said. And I suppose that takes away the possibility of the moment, the moment, the speech moment, which then I think deflates these speeches quite a lot. And that I think is something that takes away from the quality or the potential quality of speeches. But whether there's been an actual decline across all politicians, I'm not so sure. I didn't think I'd be saying this twice in the podcast, but again, being fair to Liz Truss. So do you think that lack of surprise is something that perhaps makes actually conveying emotion in the way she needs to more difficult? I think it does make it more difficult. And I, I think it's not so much about surprise in terms of the content. Ooh, was this going to be announced? But but more about the speech being a privileged moment between speaker and audience and being a privileged opportunity for a dialogue. Because let's face it, a good speech is a dialogue. It's not a monologue. It is a, a dialogue between speaker and the audience as a group. And I think that's what is taken away when the diffusion of the speech has already happened beforehand. But having said that as well, I do also think you're right that having announced certainly much of the content and if not also the actual wording of the speech potentially takes away the opportunity to convey an emotional appeal in the speech. Although I, I do think that, that really brilliant speakers probably would be able to do some of that as well. Your crisis of rhetoric report says that a crisis is a change and not a collapse. What other changes are you witnessing right now around political rhetoric and discourse? So a couple of these things we've already talked about. So the use of social media as a communication tool, and by which I mean not the mass media, but really social media. So a lot of young people, when they're being asked, so where do you get your news from? It's it's from social media rather than mainstream media, such as the BBC or whatever. A colleague of mine, so the colleague I did the Crisis of Rhetoric project with, Alan Finlayson from the University of East Anglia, has done another project, which has come out as podcasts that are free to download called Reactionary digital politics podcast. And underneath that podcast, he did a project on 
communication of politics via YouTube. And you would think that, okay, you don't do politics over YouTube, but there, there's quite a lot there. And people give speeches on YouTube and, and people listening to them. But it's again, it's a group, a self-selecting group who have already agree with what is being said. So that is as a change here, I think. Another thing is what I mentioned before about leaking speeches, content and words beforehand. So that's a problem, or at least the change, certainly. And then a lot of people, of course, talking about populist rhetoric. And I think what one could say here in terms of a change is that some of the, I wouldn't say ideas, but some of the rhetorical techniques and devices that we would perhaps associate with populist rhetoric. So, for example, the argument of us versus them is something we see perhaps seeping into other areas of political speech. People or politicians, we would think, not as necessarily populists, but it's it's sort of spreading a bit. And whether consciously or not, that's that's the question then. But I think that is a change and one we need to be alert to when when we listen to these speeches. You also state that slogans are not arguments. Do you think we can pinpoint where we lost that distinction? I don't know. I mean, even in the ancient world, you could have these kinds of slogans. So they're they're already there. So I think it's not a modern phenomenon. But I think the point that we were trying to make in our research project was that if you come up with a slogan like build the wall, it's not actually an argument for why build the wall? What is actually the purpose of the wall? And why is it a, is a good thing? It's just the slogan. But, you know, the um, efficacy of, of these kinds of slogans is that they are often quite vague, even though they sound very clear. And that means that the audience can put whatever they think into them so they can have their own associations. Does build the wall mean let's get rid of all the people from Latin America trying to get into the US, or is it let's protect our own values, or what is it? And therefore, slogans are really effective, but not actually providing an argument, a nuanced or a detailed argument. We've kind of seen things like aspiration, nation, being bandied around since Truss has come into power. So she's clearly copying those who've gone before in terms of using slogans such as that. But she's also appearing to copy Margaret Thatcher's style in her delivery. Do you think that that actually is something which can be useful? And if not in presentation, is in your content referencing the past a useful tool as a speaker? So there are different things or a couple of things in, in what you're asking here, Jacob. So I think, first of all, in terms of trust adopting Thatcher-type delivery style, but also, of course, some of her politics. I think in terms of the delivery, that was the big difference between Truss's acceptance speech at the Conservatives Party mm. conference and then her 10 Downing Street speech the following days. In the second one, she clearly was trying to speed down, so really decelerate how fast she spoke and, and speaking with sort of this, this low voice, um, <laughs> in a way sounding a bit more, dare I say it, male. So that's one thing. 
But another thing is, is these references to the past. This is a feature that also appears in the ancient world. A piece of research that I did was on Cicero's use of the past for a variety of purposes, but the overarching one was to make himself a credible politician in an elite, a political elite where ancestry was very important. So he was trying to invent mm. a kind of ancestry for himself. And you could say Trust is sort of creating or trying to create an ancestry in citation marks in the references to Thatcher, so borrowing some of the apparently positive values of Thatcher, at least to the audience Trust is addressing, mm. by appropriating them. And I wouldn't say she's not pretending to be Thatcher, but there are some associations she mm. can make there. And that can be effective, but it has to be seen to be genuine or appropriate in some kind. As well as trying to appear like past figures and perhaps taking some of their stances, is it useful to really specifically reference the past? For example, we hear sort of, I did a podcast about this recently about the 1970s and how that is constantly sort of thrown back to. Do you think that can be that can be useful within a speech to make those sort of specific references to points in time like that? Oh, absolutely. It all depends on your purpose with doing it and how you go about doing it. So it can be super effective. It can also become problematic if you don't get it quite right or people don't associate the particular historical event with what you want them to associate it with. So it is something to do with care. You need to sort of know what your audience is thinking. So for example, another reason and quite sort of much discussed the use of the past in another politician, that was when Boris Johnson delivered his farewell speech, you might say, outside of 10 Downing Street, where he referenced Cincinnatus, that he was uh, like Cincinnatus. And immediately commentators thought, and by which I mean really immediately, so it was sent out via radio and I suppose television mm. also, and the immediate comment on the radio that I listened to at least was that, ah, Boris Johnson will be returning to the plough like Cincinnatus, i.e. will be going back to political journalism. Hmm. But I thought, hang on, that is not what he's saying. Yes, he might be returning to the plow like Cincinnatus, but Cincinnatus was recalled to save Rome again. And that was what I thought Boris Johnson hmm. meant. And of course, other people then mentioned this and it, it's now mainstream. People are thinking, yeah, that's probably what he meant. But it was again... Did Boris Johnson think his audience would really understand it immediately or would they come into thinking about it? So this is where it depends who your audience is, yeah. how can they engage with it? And you could say Cincinnatus. I mean, frankly, if you haven't done classics or ancient history, well, maybe you've heard about a version of Cincinnatus, but you can't be expected to know Cincinnatus. So in mm. a way, it's it's also speaking to a very privileged audience mm. by mentioning this particular historical reference. It's sometimes that act of making it so your audience has to research something, what you're saying, a, a tool which can be useful, because I saw that for all on Twitter as well. And, you know, I could imagine... As someone who has a bit of an ego like Johnson, he was probably quite gleeful that he had all of these political journalists running off and Googling who is Cincinnatus and what did he do? Possibly so. But again, it's a gamble because, mm. and it depends on who you are as well, I suppose, because if you want to appear like 
a person of the people, then you don't want them to think, oh, I'm stupid, I don't know this. Yeah. If you want to appear a bit elite, then it's it's a good thing to do, right? Or it's a, it's a useful thing to do. So it, it depends how does it fit in with the persona that you are trying mm. to convey. A bit like, you know, the old pictures of Nigel Farage in the pub down yeah. with the people, whereas actually being an investment banker with quite a lot of money, perhaps it wasn't, but that was the impression he wanted to give. So, so you see that it depends on the message you want mm. to, to convey. On those mechanics of a speech, getting sort of further down into that, there's the notion of the rhetorical triangle of ethos, logos, and pathos being the three elements. Could you explain to me a little what they are and how they work together? Absolutely. It's, it's a good question. So this is going back to the Athenian philosopher Aristotle and his work on, on rhetoric. So, And there he posited and he was perhaps not the first one to think it, but he was the first one to write it down, which is why we know of it, that you could start to analyze a speech by thinking of these three things, ethos, logos, and pathos, meaning briefly, the character of the speaker, the logical argumentation or seemingly logical argumentation you could provide, and also the emotional appeal. And so these are often called the Aristotelian appeals, the way in which you can appeal to the audience. What I would say about ethos is that it's not just an appeal through the character of the speaker. So how does the speaker come across to the audience and how do they present themselves to the audience, both in terms of how they speak, what they speak about, how they, they look, if you can see the speaker, um, the kinds of words they use, the kinds of references, like Cincinnati is elitist or not. But it is also about the ethos of the audience. So coming back to this idea of a speech as a dialogue, because if the speaker can convey an ethos of the audience, i.e. a kind of image of the audience that they can recognize and identify with, then you're already going quite far towards a successful speech. So ethos can be both, and ideally at the same time, the character of the speaker and of the audience. Logos is, and I, I want to always say the seemingly rational argument, because in a lot of speeches, we get something that sounds as if it's really factual. But when you start unpicking it, it perhaps isn't quite factual, but it's it pretends to be or sometimes is that. And that is then the appeal through logos, the appeal through let's be really rational about it. Let's look at the facts. This will then be the decision we need to take. And then the final one, pathos, is what we often talk about because it's something that you can quite, I wouldn't say, well, at the surface level, at least, immediately identify. So the emotional appeal to the audience. Is the speaker trying to make the audience fearful of something or trying to make them hopeful of something or trying to give them some kind of emotion that makes them engage with the speaker, engage with the content of the speech, and perhaps engage with the decision or the proposal that the speaker is conveying. Do you think a problem is that there is an over-reliance from speakers on any one of those when they are making an argument, or perhaps they sort of, you know, they can associate with the audience and they can make the audience scared of something, but then they miss out on the logic. Or there are speakers such as, I don't know, uh, Keir Starmer, for example, who seems incredibly logical, but there are question marks over his his charisma. Do you think that's a, a flaw we're seeing at the moment is that people aren't 
balancing out that triangle very well. Could be that. I mean, I'm not sure that Kirstama is the first speaker in the world who has been deemed uncharismatic. There are stories about ancient Roman speakers who are either being seen as oh, a bit ridiculous or just a bit boring. With Kirstama, I suppose it's it's also a question of does the speaking style fit with the impression the audience has already of the speaker? Yeah. Because if not, the speaker could be seen as some kind of inauthentic person, even if they might not be, but could be seen as, and perception is reality in politics, as we know. And so we know him as the really sort of high-ranking uh, lawyer who, who just knows all the terms and conditions and will always make sure that all the, the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and so on. And therefore, it might prove a bit difficult for him to appear as a very impassionate speaker. It's tricky, but it is true that that is something that he's been criticized of. And I suppose to go back to Truss, her sort of monotone speaking does not make one feel that she's really passionate about things. Whereas though at other times when she was talking about trade deals, when she was the the trade secretary, she seemed very passionate about trade deals which perhaps had not would not generate a lot of money for the country, but she was really passionate about it. And one got this suspicion, maybe she was passionate about being passionate. So it's not really a, a clear-cut answer to your really good question, but it, it, it is a little bit, it depends on the particular speaker, the particular topic, and their audience. I bet Liz Truss must really regret being quite so enthusiastic about both cheese and pork markets, if uh, <laughs> looking at social media is anything to go by. To end on a uh, a hopeful note, if we can, are there any speakers around at the moment that you think we can point to as being sterling examples of getting it right? So if we think of, of speakers today, one person that I have talked about with other media is Zelensky. President Zelensky of Ukraine, who, of course, is only rarely speaking in person across the world, but is every night speaking to his own country and very often speaking to many international communities via video link. And if one looks at his speeches, one can be quite impressed with his speech writers and he must have support because otherwise he can't prepare the speeches and run the country in a war at the same time. And he has both been praised and criticized for this. But what his speeches do convey is really a concern to tailor his speech to the particular audience he's addressing. Yeah. Sometimes it can feel a little bit clumsy, but and you need to know the really specific community he's addressing. Mm. So I'm Danish. So when he spoke to the Danish parliament the first time, I listened to it and I thought, oh, okay, these are a little bit clunky, these references, but okay, he's trying. Whereas when I hear some of the speeches to other parliaments where I'm not as familiar with their context, I, I may not pick up on this. Nevertheless, it is quite impressive how he has taken on the opportunity to use speech for his political purpose in a way we have not seen for a long time with any politician in the Western world, I would say, to convey his messages and to really try to move forward on support on Ukraine. Now, some have said, oh, it hasn't really been very successful because he hasn't achieved all the things he has asked for. But I think if we could contrafactually compare it with not having given these speeches, I think they, they have 
made a difference. And I think we can look at his speeches as being part of that difference, partly because of the care that has been taken in these addresses. Henriette, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It was a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Yelena Masofrinievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese with assistant production by Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>